Matthew chapter 26. Matthew chapter 26. We're going to shift gears now in the book of Matthew. And uh, we're going to come here now to chapter 26. And uh, really from the rest of this book on out we are for, of uh, Matthew, we're going to be moving from uh, the son of David to the son of Abraham. Uh, Charles, uh, John Nelson Darby said about this chapter that from, he, he said from this point on in the book of Matthew, you need very little explanation not because the events that are going to transpire from here on are not important or interesting, but because what is going to happen needs to be felt rather than explained. And I I like that. I thought that was a good thing there. So when you read the passages here, as we're going to move forward, I've got stuff to say about them, okay? But it's really more to get the sense of uh, what's, what's transpiring and what's happening. In our past studies in the book of Luke and in the book of John, when we've come now to the Calvary and going to the cross, we spent a lot of time, you know, <laughs> developing the details. And so there are some things that we'll just kind of make a hit and, hit and run. But for the most part, we'll, we'll be going down through, uh, through this as... We are, but it's important here because of where we've been now up to the book, up to chapter 26, where we have been all through, well, let's just read verse 1. And it came to pass when Jesus had finished all these sayings, he said unto his disciples, ye know that after two days is the feast of the Passover, and the Son of Man is, is betrayed to be crucified. Now, you'll notice it says, And it came to pass when Jesus had finished all these sayings. In chapter 21, he enters Jerusalem, the, the triumphal entry. He goes in, he cleanses the temple. He presents himself as Messiah, as the King, as the Anointed One, as the one who... Uh, is going to come to be Israel's Redeemer and Savior. He then goes up on the, I shouldn't say 21 is not the triumphal end. Is it? I said that. Now it's bogged down into my mind. Yep. Yeah, it is. I'm sorry. Okay. (laughs) I was like, I I thought that was what that was. Then he, he, he goes up on the Mount of Olives, and he begin, and he's been preaching the great, Discourse that we've been studying through the last couple chapters, where he takes them, the little flock, the disciples, and he talks to them about the coming kingdom. Then he talks to them about the impact of his coming on the nation of Israel, then on his disciples. Then on the nations, the Gentiles out there, and on the believing remnant, and so forth. So he's, his coming and his glorious kingdom, and all of the ramification has been what he's been discussing. Now, two days, in a couple days, he's going to do what? Go and die, verse 1, Okay. So you've got this shift that's going to happen. He's finished all of his sayings, and now he's going to go and be submissive to the sufferings 
that were appointed for him to go through, and he's going to become obedient unto death, even the death of the cross. And again, this matches up with the outline given to us in Matthew 1.1. talks about the generation of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. The first 25 chapters, he is eminently and preeminently the son of David, the king, the one to whom the throne and all the royal rights belong. Now, starting here in chapter 26, he's no longer just the son of David. He is now the son of Abraham. And if you think about Genesis 22, with Abraham, with Isaac, Abraham takes Isaac up on that mount there in Moriah. The handbooks and all, it's very interesting. They actually say that that mountain that Abraham took Isaac up on ends up being Golgotha, where Calvary is. Um, I don't know how you would prove that, but that's what the handbook guys say and so forth. It's very interesting. But he takes Abraham takes Isaac and says, you guys stay down here. Me and the lad, we're going to go up. We're going to worship. We're going to come back. He knew that he was, he was going to go up. He's going up to make a sacrifice. There is no lamb. So Abraham knows. Hebrews 11 over there, he talks about Abraham says, hey, I'm going to take him up and the Lord will resurrect him because he's the seed. And that's exactly where we're at here with the Lord now. So the most complete type in Scripture in the Old Testament is that issue with Isaac and Abraham about the son of Abraham going there and dying. And that's now what Christ is going to do. From here on, Christ is going to be the son of Abraham with his sufferings and, and his death in his view. So you, it's an interesting thing here. And I will repeat what I've said before when we went through it in Luke and in John. I think you should be more, I think we should know more about the details of the death of the Lord Jesus Christ as they are recorded in Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John than we know about anything else. Okay? Now, obviously we need Paul's epistles. I'm not talking about that. But when you come in and you think about what's happening in Scripture, we need to, because, man, that, that impacts us. Paul in Galatians 6 says, I glory, I glory in the cross. Then you need to know those details about the cross. Uh, it, it was said that the closer Christ comes to the cross, the more kingly he appears. And uh, that's what we're going to see as we go through this, the, these, these sections. So when we begin to look into this passage, again, we're not going to run just run through it. There's some technical things here. But we're, all, we're just shifting gears now. We're getting out of all that prophetic and looking ahead. So now we're going to look here in the moment. And, and again, we need to know those details about the cross, uh, you know, tremendously important to us. Uh, again, we have, to ha we, we have to know Paul's epistles because that's the stuff for us today, the age of grace, but in the dispensation of grace. But we do need to, to uh, understand what's, what, it, what the Lord is going through on the cross, okay? All right, let's get into the passage here, verse 2. Ye know that after two days is the feast of Passover, and the Son of Man is betrayed to be crucified. No, notice what, he, what he's going to do here. Uh, he is telling them ahead of time that he's going to die. 
That's what he just said. If you look down at verse 3, Then assembled together the chief priests and the scribes and the elders of the people under the palace of the high priest who was uh, Caiaphas, and consulted that they might take Jesus by subtility and kill him. But they said, Not on the feast day, lest there be an uproar among the people. Notice verse 2, Christ tells his disciples he's going to be betrayed and crucified, and they're going to come up and say, no, we're not going to do it on the feast day. And he goes, yes, you are. And when we get down into his death, guess what happens? He, they do kill him on Passover. It's right there. So he, he's just, he just says it in a very subtle fact. You know, over there in John 10, he says, no man, talking about his life, no man taketh from me, but I what? I lay it down of myself. So it, when this is going to happen, it's going to happen how he says it. It isn't going to happen by him, by someone coming and doing it and, and so forth. He, it, it's fascinating in the garden scenes when they come to take him. He says, who are you looking for? And they said, Jesus of Nazareth. And he says, I am he. And they fall out. <laughs> and they didn't come and take him. He went with them. They come in with all the armory and everything. He goes, you didn't need all that. I'll go. I'm going with you. They didn't bind him up or anything. He, I'll go. Then they bound him after he allowed them to approach him. And that's the scenario here um, that, that's going to happen. He knew what was going on. And uh, he's the king in the midst of, of it. And in spite of what these guys think they're going to do to him, it isn't going to happen unless it's on his bidding. Verse 2 there, again, that issue there about two days is the feast of Passover. What do they say in verse 5? We want to kill him, but just not on the feast day. And uh, he, he told them that he was going to die and when he was going to die there in verse 2. And again, that's a picture of his foreknowledge of who he is and so forth. So, um they say, we're not going to do it on this day, we're going to do it on that day. And he says, no, you're wrong. You're going to kill me here. And uh, that's what's going to happen here. If you look down at verse 18, and he said, go into the city to such a man and say unto him, the master saith, my time is at hand. I will keep the Passover at the house with my disciples. And the disciples did as Jesus had appointed them, and they made ready the Passover. He knows right where to send them. He, he knows right where to go. He knows right what's going to happen. He, he knows, you know, who's coming. He knows all of the details. And it's because he's the king. And uh, he's also God. And he knows what's happening. By the way, down in verse 25. So in verse 18 and 19, he knows where to send them. In verse 25... He identifies Judas of Iscariot as the one who's going to betray him. Verse 31, if you look at there at 31, Then said Jesus unto them, All ye shall be offended because of me this night. He tells them, All of you guys are going to forsake me. Peter voice jumps up there in verse 33 and says, I'll never be offended. And in verse 34, Jesus says, Yeah, you will before the crock crow three times. You're going to, you're going to betray, you're going to... Uh, deny me so 
He's right. He knows what's going on. And uh, he, he's, come back to verse 3, he might be going to the cross, but he's still the king. He's still the master. And he's still the one who knows and controls and uh, demonstrates it all through who he is. And uh, when he goes to Calvary, he doesn't go as a victim. He goes as the Messiah. He goes as the king. And too often times people paint him out to be a victim, and he's not. He's well aware of what's happening, and he knows what needs to be done. Verse 3, Then assembled together the chief priest and the scribes and the elders of the people unto the palace of the high priest who was called Caiaphas, and consulted that they might take Jesus by subtility and kill him. They just flat out want to murder him. They, they have murder in their eyes, and they just want to nail him. Now, the kicker in all of this, come over to John 11. The, the thing in all of this is, is you'll notice who's doing this. There in verse 3, then assembled together the chief, what? Priest and the scribes and the elders. These are the priests doing this. These are the leaders. The, the religious leadership is doing this as well. And, and again, he has, uh, he has said a lot about the priests. You remember the big robes and the high seats and to be called father in the marketplace, and he's nailing them all. And uh, that's, that's who he's uh, dealing with, and that's where he's... Uh, talking to and about because that's who's going to come after him now in, in that issue of, of, of uh, just religious tyranny and uh, the religious side of things. Uh, John 11, by the way, you have to remember in all of this, the Bible, is the Bible negative toward God and positive toward man? No, the Bible is negative toward man and positive towards God. That's why people hate the Bible so. That's what it is. Why? Because what does the Bible say man is? A sinner, ungodly, useless, worthless. You're a worm. <laughs> You're an enemy. You know, what does man say? No, here I am. Look at me. Look at how great I am. And the Bible, the Word of God comes in and says no. So when Jesus is, he is the Word, capital W, He's been what? Nailing these guys. And so what do they want to do? They just want to kill him. Uh, look at John 11, verse 47. We're going to spend some time here in John 11 and, and so forth. But John 11, 47. Uh-oh. Then gathered the chief priests and the Pharisees a council and said. You've got to watch out for councils in the Bible. Uh, it's usually not a good thing. Religious, and, religious councils in Scripture are bad business. They are bad, bad, bad. Okay? If you think about what did the councils do, they have uh, persecuted the apostles, went after the prophets, chased Paul all over creation, and uh, all they're up to is uh, evil, bad news. When you look at the, like the Roman Catholic Church and you go back in history and you look at the Council of Trent or the Council of Dormant, or these all, and all, nothing good comes out of any of that. Guess what these guys are doing? They got a council meeting, you know. 
<laughs> they, uh, so one of the lady, one of the Congress people were talking about in our committee, we decided to form a committee, <laughs> a council on doing something. I'm like, that doesn't make sense. A committee, on, you know, so here they are. 1147, they, the Pharisees, a council and saith, what do, what do we? For this man doeth miracles. If, now watch, if we let him thus alone, all men will believe on him, and the Romans shall come and take away our place and nation. Notice what they are worried about. They're worried about their position. They're worried about their political and economic status in the community. They're worried more about money and pomp and circumstance and clout than they are about breaking their own law, as we've seen in the past, as we'll see as we go forward. Verse 49, And one of them, named Caiaphas, being the high priest that same year, said unto them, Ye know not at all, nor consider that it is expedient for us that one man should die for the people and that the whole nation perish not. Notice what he says. He says, they, they want to they go and kill him. And Caiaphas kind of slow him down a little bit. And he says, look, we're going we're gonna to let, let this guy off. We'll save the nation because if we don't get rid of him, the Romans are going to come in and take away everything. So let's get rid of him. And that's what Caiaphas is saying there. It's like, look, we can't let him go. we got to get rid of this guy. And the re again, though, the reason for, come back to Matthew 26, the reason for their desire to kill him, to murder him, is that they, they, they have power and prestige and position and status and, uh, in the world that they want to protect. And, you know, you see it around us today. You look at the nonsense going on in Washington. All they want to, I was, we were talking earlier, I don't understand how one guy can cause half of a country to flip over into pure hatred. Just pure hatred. Not listen to reason, not, just pure hate. One guy did it. Well, here we got a guy doing the same thing, except it didn't half the country, it's the whole nation. <laughs> Okay, so when you think here, that's exactly what they're doing. And what we're going to see now as we continue down here, 26.4, and consulted that they might take Jesus by subtility and kill him. But they said, not on the feast day, lest there be an uproar among the people. What we're going to see here is human nature. And we're going to see that the way the religion of the world and the religious systems out there operate and the way man operates, the way man thinks, and the way he responds. And you get this good, you get this wonderful idea and picture, not idea, but picture here of how man operates. And you know what you do? You see it around us all even today. You know, when God created man in Genesis 1, he created, Romans 1 tells us that he put that witness in man. He put into man the issue of worship. And the issue of worshiping God. So what does man know to do? Worship. What do I worship? What am I looking for to worship? Worship. You know, uh, I got accused Sunday of worshiping Alabama. And it wasn't a joke, you know, and everything. 
because I enjoy Alabama. You know, well, okay, I'll, I'll take that moniker. Fine, thank you very much. But it was a joke, and we had a good laugh at it. But that's what you think about when you see people get so frenzied about something. What is it? There's that built-in in the human nature to want to worship. So, anyway, that's what we're going to see here as we go down through and uh, take care of this uh, in, in this passage. Verse 5, And they said, not on, not on the feast day, lest there be an uproar among the people. They, again, they, don't, they want to kill him, but they need to do it where they can save face. We can't do it on a feast day because what's going to happen? The people are going to be in an uproar. So we've got to save face. Let's not do it. It'll be politically inexpedient to kill him on the Passover because the people are just not going to stand for it. So we gotta we gotta watch our religious ceremonies. We gotta watch our calendar. What good's good for you today, Bob? <laughs> and type of thing. And they're gonna work it out. And again, they are not. They're, they're they are. They're not trying. Notice it doesn't say, not because killing him is wrong. It doesn't. Not on the feast day because what the people will be in an uproar. We get over. When we studied John 18, uh, over there, they're, they're up there lying about Christ and, and trying to get him murdered by the Romans. And it's murder. That's what it is. He's an innocent man. Pilate three times finds no, no, no cause, no cause. He's innocent. What are you trying to do? So they don't say, we're not going to kill him because he's innocent. We're just not going to kill him on the feast days because politically it's going to be a headache. It's going to be a hard pill for everyone to swallow. And again, that is what religion does. They just come along and they focus on the outward ceremonial issues. That's why Christ, again, he tells them, you're what? White sepulchers and you're dirty rotten inside. And there's no way to fix you guys. And you just have that stench of death. (laughs) You're rotten, you're corrupted. And uh, there's just the way it is. So the reason, again, here is they just want him dead. But they have to watch their politics and their political stance. Verse 6. Now when Jesus was in Bethany in the house of Simon the leper, there came unto him a woman having an alabaster box of very precious ointment and poured it on his head as he sat at meat. Now, the Christ has set the stage already in verse 2. In two days, I'm going to go die. Okay? In verse 6 now, he's going to lay out the backstory here uh, of what's going on prior to him going now in two days to die. It, it, this is a flashback. Okay, this event from 6 to 13 has already happened. It happens earlier. Come over with me to John chapter 12. Uh, You've ever watched a a war movie or something or, you know, you watch a TV show every now and then and the show's full of flashbacks. And we were, Linda and I were watching a show the other day and it says three years later and they do all this stuff and then it goes today and then they do some stuff three years later. 
today. Three months before, I'm, I told Lance I'm so confused. <laughs> Where are we? Three years later or three months ago? Which are we? Are we today? We're, you know, it was, but it was this flashback thing. That's what the Lord's doing here. What we're going to read here doesn't chronologically take place here in Matthew at this time. It's a literary technique where you're talking about something now and you reach back in the past and you bring it forward so you can see the significance of the event in the context of what's happening and what we're discussing. So when you look at Matthew 26, 6, and look at John 12, verse number 1, Matthew 26, 6 says, Now when Jesus was in Bethany in the house of Simon the leper, 12, 1, then Jesus, six days before the Passover came to Bethany, where Lazarus was, which had been dead, whom he raised from the dead. There they made him a supper, and Martha served, but Lazarus was one of them that sat at the table with him. Then took Mary a pound of ointment of spikenard, very costly, and anointed the feet of Jesus, and wiped his feet with her hair. And the house was filled with the odor of the ointment. Then saith one of his disciples, Judas Iscariot, Simon's son, which should betray him, Why was not this ointment sold for 300 pence and given to the poor? Notice the passage. Now, that's going to line up with what we're going to read in Matthew 26, starting in verse 6 down to 13. But in Matthew 26, 2, he says he's two days until the Passover. John 12 says what? Six days. So this event happens four days prior to Matthew 26, 2. Follow that? Six days minus four. Okay. <laughs> All right. And so, you, so Matthew flashes back, brings it up, inserts it in as a, as a flashback here. And again, in, by the way, in, in John 12, you don't find the entry of, of Christ into Jerusalem until after verse 12, after the event. In Matthew 26, he's going into Jerusalem and then they talk about the event in verse 6, see, John, Matthew 26, 1. And it came to pass when he finished all these days, what he's going in. Actually, you don't see Christ, you don't see the entry of Christ into Jerusalem in Matthew 26. It's five chapters before in Matthew 21. Yeah, that's some things going on there. So there's a flashback here. We're going to get there. We'll look at it here in just a second. So Matthew, what Matthew is doing here is he's telling you, he's demonstrating for us, here's the son of Abraham, and now he's going to go to the cross. And here's what is going to happen. He's going there to die. So he's setting the time and the plot, and he does it with this story. You slip something there in the 12, and go back to, to 26, Matthew 26. So he's setting the, the timeline. He's setting the, the, ish, the, the thing here. Uh, 
it's almost like he said, it's almost like Matthew said, hey, do you remember that time when the Lord was there a couple days ago in Bethany? Do you remember what happened in Bethany when he was there just a few days ago? So he's bringing this in. Verse 6. Now when Jesus, Matthew, I'm in Matthew 26, 6. <laughs> now when Jesus was in Bethany, in the house of Simon this, the leper, there came unto him a woman having an alabaster box of very precious ointment and poured it on his head as he sat at meat. But when his disciples saw it, they had indignation, saying, To what purpose is this waste? For this ointment might have been sold for much and given to the poor. When Jesus understood it, he said unto them, Why trouble ye the woman? For she hath wrought a good work upon me. For ye have the poor always with you, but me ye have not always. For in that she hath poured this ointment on my body, she did it for my, what? Burial. The incident is associated with what's about to happen. And it has a, it has a great impact on the heart of the Lord. It, it's, he's going to face Calvary. He's going to, face, he's going to look into the cup of the wrath of the indignation of the Father. He's going to go and suffer. And here is Martha, Mary. And what is she doing? She's getting him ready for burial. <laughs> and she's doing something. So this is... Bethany for the Lord was a very special place. It was a place of, of, a, of a retreat and refreshment for him. He had loving and loyal friends at Bethany. Martha and Mary lived there. Lazarus was there. Um, a lot of people say that Simon the leper was actually Martha's husband. Can't tell. Obviously, Simon the leper, he was a leper. He's not anymore. The Lord healed him and so forth. Okay, you can say all that if you'd like. Uh, actually, some say that he's the leper in John 17. It's hard to tell. Anyway, they're at the house, and what are they having? They're having a meal. They're having a supper. And, the, and then she comes up. Mary does, and she begins to do something here where it's a moment of, it just warms the heart of the Lord. In verse 10, when Jesus understood it, there's something going on. By the way, the, here it's the head. In John 12, it's the feet. In John, he's just washed the, uh, or he's going to wash the disciples' feet as they go up into the upper room and have the big meeting. So here she pours it on his head. Head, it dribbles all the way down to his feet. So it's a whole body, head to foot, head to toe. But in Matthew, it's the head because what are they worried? What, what's, what sits on the king's head? The crown. What are you worried about? You're not worried about his feet. You're worried about his head. Because without the head, he's dead. Okay? So you have that issue there. It's really the whole body. That's the issue. The head to the feet. Okay? And actually, he says that to her there when he says... She had wrought a good work, verse 12. She did it for my burial. She's getting the whole of it ready to go. Okay? 
So notice in verse 12, or the end there where he says, she wrought a good work upon me. You're going to always have the poor with you, but me, you, always, you have not always. Do you see the, the, the focus of, of Mary is on him? Mary was occupied with only one person in the room. She's occupied with him. She's occupied with him and she's thinking about him. She's sitting at his feet. She's learning his words. You know, Martha, Martha, you're cumbered about. Mary's sitting. You know, Martha comes in. Would you make my sister come and help me? And he's like, Martha, Martha, Martha. You're busy, busy, busy. And she's right where she, okay, she, she, what, she's right where she's supposed to do. She's listening. She's learning. She's, she could sense what was in his heart. She could sense what he was feeling at the time. He's, it's the dark hour of his death. It's coming. It's weighing on him. We're just a couple hours, well, a couple days, I'm sorry, away from it. It was, it was an issue of her being right where she was supposed to be. She's sitting at his feet and she's occupied just with him. And when he begins to tell them about going to the cross, she, the one who is occupied just with him, she feels it, she owns it. Her heart is in just total tune with him. And then she goes and does something marvelous here. And yet what the disciples look at her in indignation. And they just look at her and uh, just, you know, just say, what in the world is going on here? (laughs) And what that tells you here is the disciples, they didn't quite clue into all of this. They did know about all of the enmity against him. Come back over with me to John 11. John chapter 11. I'm trying to go slow, and I don't know how far we're going to get by me going slower, but look at John 11. Look at verse 8. This is where the Lord's going to raise Lazarus. John 11, 8. His disciples say unto him, Master, the Jews of late sought to stone thee, and goest thou thither again. You see, they understood that he had an opposition. If you drop down to verse 16, then said Thomas, which is called Didymus, everybody remembers Thomas's bad day, you know, <laughs> where he says, I ain't going to believe him until I can see him and touch him. By the way, that was on a Wednesday night. He missed Wednesday night Bible study. <laughs> uh, there you go. Okay, work that in there somehow, okay? And what does he say here, verse 16? He says unto his fellow disciples, let us also go that we may die with him. You see, Thomas says, hey, we ought to go and die with him. And that's a good testimony, and that's a good work. But when you come back here to Matthew 26, they're not happy with her doing, they're tone deaf, if you will. They, she did a good work. What does he say there, Matthew 26? Um, verse 10, for she hath wrought a good work upon 
me. She wasn't looking around at everything else going on. They are. They're aware of all this stuff. She was simply looking at him. And she feels what affects him, and her love draws out of her this action that was fit for the occasion to get him ready, to have a tender moment. And she pours that ointment on the body there. She did it for, my verse 12, my burial. On, res, on the, the resurrection morning, okay, when they go down there, what, remember what the ladies, Luke 24, what are they doing? They're carrying spices down to prepare the body because the body came off the cross so fast because of the feast stuff that they didn't have a chance to prepare the body. So they're going up and hoping that they'll be let in so they can prepare the body. She's doing it ahead of time. It's all pictures, all typing, putting it together. But it's really the tenderness in it. And it's the tender moment here. And uh, she's the only one who got to do it, by the way. Nobody else pours ointment on him or puts on it. By the way, when the ladies got to the temple, I mean to the tomb, he was what? Gone. She's the only one that got to anoint and to take care of his body. Get him ready for the burial. Now look at verse 8, because there's a couple things in here not to miss. But when his disciples saw it, they had indignation, saying, to what purpose is this waste? They look at it and they get all pompy on her, you know, stuff. What? What's going on here? What is this? This is wasteful. For this ointment might have been sold for much and given to the poor. John 12, it's 300 pence. When we went through John 12, I looked at, we were looking at that. That's like a year's wage for these folks, you know. We could have sold that ointment for $300 and been good to go. And we could have went and we could have took care of the poor. Now, watch verse 8. To what purpose is this, what's that word? Waste. Here's this little lady who comes in with an expensive ointment. She pours out every bit of it on the Lord, from his head to his feet. She used it all on him. The only person who was ever going to get any good out of the ointment was Christ. And she gave it all to him. And they look at it and they say, you wasted it. Wow. They didn't say, oh, praise the Lord, you're thinking about him. They said you wasted it. We could have sold that. We could have went over here. We could have had a great ministry amongst the poor. When you took all that ointment, Mary, and you, put it, you poured it out on him and him alone, it was wasteful. Why weren't you thinking about the poor? That's horrible. And the reason they did that is because, you know what they were focused on? 
their ministry. They were focused on getting results. See? That's what they were focused on. They weren't focused on him. And what's about to happen here at the meal, they're going to go down now and they're going to go up in the upper room and he's going to train them, John 13 to 16, 17 there. And he's going to get them ready for his absence and so forth. They weren't focused on him at all. They were focused on their ministry stuff. They they missed it here. You see, they're looking at their results. If you'd have given us that ointment, oil, we would have went, take care of the poor. We could have fed, oh man, we could have fed that little young girl over there in Africa for 30 years off of that money. You know, 19 cents a day. They're wrong focus. Those disciples here of the Lord were focused on the ministry and on getting results and on what they were doing. They're just selfish. The results from from not being occupied with Christ. There isn't anywhere it shows up more obviously, honestly, than in the ministry. Because you know what happens? For some, that ministry is all about counting the, the offering box and count numbers in the room. And lately it's numbers on the internet, you know, and the YouTube hits and likes and all that stuff, rather than looking and focusing on him. There is not one indication in the gospel accounts that they ever did anything comparable to what this lady did. They never understood what she understood. They never had their heart beat with his heart like she did, Mary. In just a few verses down from here, you're going to find them arguing about who gets to sit on their, on the, who's going to be the greatest in the kingdom. Who gets to sit on your right hand. And you know what? By the way, who's going to be the greatest in the kingdom? The Lord Jesus Christ. That's who's going to be the greatest. And they don't take that into consideration. Mary, Mary's love and her service of love literally brought out the traitor's heart here. And that's the issue there in verse 8 of really who complained. Look at verse 8. But when his disciples saw it, they had indignation, saying... To what purpose is this waste? So go back to John 12. And notice who really was doing the complaining. Who really stirred up the group? Who really got them moving? And off of where they should have been. John chapter 12, verse number 4. Am I going slow enough for you? Okay. I'm I'm trying, believe me. (laughs) What's that? Okay. John 12, verse 4, Then saith one of his disciples, Judas Iscariot, Simon's son, which should betray him. Why was not this ointment sold for 300 pence and given to the poor? You know who said that? Judas said that. Judas Iscariot said that. He saw her. He saw what she was doing. He looks at her and says, What are you doing? He then looks over there, gets the disciples, they get to talking amongst themselves. Judas has done stirred them all up. 
What is she doing? Look at what, guys, do you know, man, we were just talked about this the other day in the board meeting. And man, she could have done, and they, and they get all worked up. Cause it a waste. You wasted it. Yes. Yep. Yeah. Yeah. Back in Matthew 26, there, verse 10. And when Jesus understood it, he was caught in the moment with Mary. He was having a moment with Mary and all the noise. And he's like, whoa, whoa yeah, wake up. That's a good way to say it. He, well, okay, he, he was alerted. He understood it. So what does he say there in verse 10? Why trouble ye her? Why trouble ye the woman? For she hath wrought a good work on What is you guys' problem here? What's the deal? I'm back in Matthew 26, I'm, okay? What's going on here? No, it, I, I could only imagine the intimacy of the moment. But see... This, again, a flashback to four days ago. Hey, you guys remember Matthew when the Lord was in Bethany doing this? Now, come down to verse 13, 26, 13. Verily I say unto you, whosoever this gospel shall be preached in the whole world, there shall also, there shall also this, that this woman hath, what, done, be told for a memorial of her. Very touching what the Lord finally says here. He finally shuts them down. Says, look guys, enough. He never said that about the apostles ever. But he did say it about this, this lady, Mary. Yes. Yeah, there's quite a few Marys. Yes. Where are you reading at? Oh, yeah. It's one of them. It's Martha and Mary. It's John 12. Yeah, yeah. It's Martha's sister. And she's in the group of the women that do go to the sepulcher. She's, she is with them. Okay? If it was Mary Magdalene, it would say Mary Magdalene. They, they're very much, Scripture's very uh, specific when it comes to her. They, uh, so it's Martha and Mary. They're always together. So when you, and then Mary, the Lord's mother, is how it'll usually say, identifying Mary. Okay? So, yeah, Mary Magdalene is never just Mary. She's always Mary Magdalene in Scripture. Okay? All right. Yeah, though, there's a ton of Marys. <laughs> What's that? Um, sure. See the picture of the saved sinner, converted sinner. Yep. Um, all right, 2613. Verily I say unto you, whosoever this gospel shall be preached in the whole world, there shall also this that this woman hath done be told for a memorial of her. That's a rebuke to those who were not fully occupied with him. 
and it's a memorial to someone who was totally and completely occupied with him. Okay? He never said that about anyone else but her. And that... Now, that's inserted here to show two things. One, it's to show how Mary does something that is an encouragement to the heart of the Savior as he's facing Calvary. But it's also to reveal the, guy, the next guy, the traitor. Verse 14, Then one of the twelve called Judas Iscariot went unto the chief priest, and he said unto them, What will you give me, and I will deliver him unto you? And they coveted with him for thirty pieces of silver, and from that time he sought opportunity to betray him. So the event in Bethany did two things. One, it revealed Mary and her, the, 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 the uh, touching scene between her and the Savior and the encouragement to him. But then it also revealed Judas Iscariot and the traitor. Now, the name Judas Iscariot is, 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 is kind of important here. Um, when you look at the issue, you've got Judas, all right, and then you've got, and I'm going to misspell it, so let me just use my cheat here. All right. All right, so you've got Judas Iscariot. In the Hebrew, that's Judah, all right, and then Iscariot comes from Ishi, and then Keroth. Okay, so what? And this is important. Come, come back to Jeremiah forty-eight. The reason this is important, and um, we'll probably get this and then be done here. Jeremiah forty-eight is because of Keroth. So when you work this out the rest of the way, so you have Judah, Ishi is man from Keroth. Okay, so you have a man from Keroth. And uh, when you run that, Judas is a half-breed Syrian Jew. That's who he is. Uh, he is actually, when you run his genealogy back, he is in the line of Nimrod. You know who that is. And Nimrod is a classic type of the Antichrist. So Judas become, Judas is one of the twelve. He's a man from Kerioth, and he is going to be a type of the Antichrist. There's 18 major types of the Antichrist in Scripture, and Judas is one of them. Jeremiah 48.1 Against Moab, thus saith the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, woe unto Nebo. And, and then he goes after all of the descendants of Moab. Down to verse 24. And upon Keroth, and upon Bozer, and upon all the cities of the land of Moab, far or near, the horn of Moab is cut off, and his arm is broken, saith the Lord." Notice there's a man whose judgment comes. That's going to be at the second coming of Christ. If you look there at verse 15, the end of the verse, saith the king whose name is the Lord of hosts. And that's Christ. So he's talking about judgment. 
that's going to take place as he comes down around Bozrah down there in Moab. And it's going to come upon Keroth. And there's going to be a man there who's got a broken arm. And it's, he's going to be the broken-armed man from Keroth. Now, why that's all important and how all that works out, come over to Zechariah chapter 11. Zechariah chapter 11. And uh, watch all this kind of come together here with uh, what's, what's going to happen. Zechariah eleven fifteen, Zechariah 11, verse 15. And the Lord said unto me, Take unto thee yet the instruments of a foolish shepherd. For lo, I will raise up a shepherd in the land, which shall not visit those that be cut off, neither shall seek the young one, nor heal that that is broken, nor feed that that standeth still, but he shall eat the flesh of the fat and tear their claws in pieces. That's the Antichrist, just I, FYI. Verse 17, woe to the idle shepherd. Notice it's I-D-O-L, okay? It's the issue there in Revelation that false prophet causes the image and to be worshipped, and they all fall down and worship the image. That's the guy he's talking about here. Verse 17, Woe to the idle shepherd that leaveth the flock. The sword shall be upon his, what? Arm. And upon his right eye. His arm shall be clean dried up, and his right eye shall be utterly darkened. The, the reference here and what he's talking about is the deadly wound of the Antichrist that he's going to suffer in the midst of the week. 1 Thessalonians 2 over there, he talks about the man of sin, the son of perdition, the two parts. As a man of sin, he is going to come out and he's going to be assassinated in the midst of the week. And you know what he's going to do? It's going to be a strike of the sword. It's going to take his right. It's going to take him down. It's going to get his right eye. It's going to be darkened. So if it's his right eye and his arm, he's like this, isn't he? Stopping the, the strike, and he's wounded. And it's a deadly wound. In Revelation 6, the Antichrist there is discussed. And uh, so forth, you're in Zechariah 11. Look back up at verse 12. So what you have here is you have a picture in Matthew of Judas Iscariot showing up now, being revealed because of the events with Mary there in Bethany at the supper. And here he is, and who he is is he's going to be that man from Keroth there that's going to end up being the Antichrist where he's coming out. That's why... The Antichrist is called the Assyrian. He's a Syrian Jew. He's a half-breed. He's a mixed guy. And that's where it is. Verse 12, Zechariah 11, 12. And I said unto them, If you think good, give me my price, and if not, forbear. So they weighed for my price 30 pieces of silver. And there's where we just read of 30 pieces of silver in Matthew 26, uh, verse 13 here. And the Lord said unto me, Cast it, it unto the potter, a goodly price that I was prized at of them. And I took the 30 pieces of silver and cast them to the potter in the house of the Lord. And in Matthew 27, verse 7, what does he do? Judas goes in there, 
puts them in there, and the potter's field is established. Okay? So when you come back to Matthew 26, you've got that is what's transpiring. The Lord says, look, guys, two days I'm going to die. The councils are already meeting to kill me. I need you to remember this story because that's how now we know about Judas Iscariot and what's going to happen. By the way, the 30 pieces of silver, um, Exodus, hang on a second here. Uh, I've got to find my note. Exodus 21, verse 32 in Exodus 21:32, you'll read that 30 pieces of silver was the price that was paid for a slave when he was killed or rendered useless. And if a slave was killed or hurt so he couldn't work anymore, the guy that did it to him had to pay 30 pieces of silver to the guy to the slave's master. So Judas sold Christ for the price of a useless slave. That's what he did. Yeah, really a nice guy. Matthew 26, 17. We've got a few more minutes here. So, again, a lot going on. I'm trying to pick as we go, go a little slow. Verse 17. Now the first day of the feast of unleavened bread, the disciples came to Jesus saying unto him, where wilt thou that we prepare for thee to eat the Passover? Where do you want to have the Passover? It's coming. And he said, Go into the city to such a man and say unto him, The master saith, My time is at hand. I will keep the Passover at thy house with my disciples. And the disciples did as Jesus had appointed them, and they made ready the Passover. In the other account, they, he says, You go into the city and look for the guy holding the water pitcher. The, the jug. And when you see him, that, so we're getting the upper room ready is what we're doing here. Verse 20. Now when the even was come, he sat down with who? The twelve. This is the upper room. This is John 12, 13, 14, 15, 16, 17. All of that happens in one evening. But the significance in 20 is that who did he sit down with in the upper room? Just the twelve. Okay, sometimes you'll hear people say, well, Lazarus was there. That verse doesn't say that. That verse says, with the twelve, who was sitting at the supper there. Okay, what's going on here now as they sit to eat? Verse 21, and as they did eat, he said, verily I say unto you, that one of you shall betray me. And they were exceeding sorrowful, and began every one of them to say unto him, Lord, is it I? And he answered and said, He that dippeth his hand with me in the dish, the same shall betray me. The Son of Man goeth as it is written of him, but woe unto that man by whom the Son of Man is betrayed. It hath been good for that man if he had not been born. <laughs> Whoa, it's kind of like Job. Wish I hadn't been born. Don't celebrate my birthday. Then Judas, verse 25, which betrayed him, answered and said, Master, is it I? He said unto him, Thou hast said. They're in the upper room now. They're having the supper. And he says, Look, one of you guys are going to betray me. And uh, he lets it sink into him. And what do they say? Lord, is it I? Could it be me? In other words, every one of them had a guilty conscience 
except for one guy. Come over to John 13. Every, all of these guys, they got guilt real quick. Lord, is it me? And in John 13, in the, the account here, start down in verse 20, well, verse 25. Well, shoot, verse 23. Now there was leaning on Jesus' bosom one of his disciples whom Jesus loved. Simon Peter therefore beckoned to him that he should ask who it should be of whom he spake. He then, lying on Jesus' breast, said unto him, Lord, who is it? John, that's the one lying, whom the Lord loved, lying on Jesus' breast. He doesn't sit there and say, Lord, is it I? He says what? Who is it? The other guys all said what? Is it me? Am I going to be the one who's going to do such a terrible thing? John says what? He had a clear conscience. No guilt there. He says, who is it? Now that's important. Look over. Wow, man. John 18. Hold on to John 13. Sorry. John 18. John 18, 15. And Simon Peter followed Jesus, and so did another disciple. That disciple was known unto the high priest, and went in with Jesus into the palace of the high priest. But Peter stood at the door without. The Lord's going in to the trial, and where's John? Right with him. Peter's on the outside. When John, in John 19, go back to John 13, in John 19, at the cross... There's not a disciple there but John at the foot of the cross. They're all in hiding on lockdown. John's there. The Lord looks at John and says, Behold your mom, mom, behold your son. The, that commencement there of the care of the little flock and the, the nation of Israel for each other. Now, John 13, 26. Jesus answered, He it is to whom I shall give a sop when I have dipped it, and when he had dipped the sop, he gave it to Judas Iscariot, the son of Simon. And after the sop, Satan entered into him, and off he goes. Now, what's important about John 13, 25, and 26 is that when John looked at the Lord, he doesn't, number one, he doesn't say, is it me? Okay? He says, who is it? Verse 26, Jesus answered. Who is Jesus talking to? John. He's not talking to Peter or anybody. He's talking to John. And what does he say to John? Here's how you're going to identify the Antichrist. So John, it's revealed to John who is going to betray him. And it's John that becomes a type of the tribulation saints who, are going to ha who have the Antichrist revealed to them. And yet who are true to the Lord in the face of all of it, never leaves him. So John literally becomes a type of the little flock who are going to identify the Antichrist and warn the nation and so forth. And that's what you see all through the book of Revelation, him do. He identifies the Antichrist and warns the nation about it. Now go back to Matthew 26. So when you think about the passage here, verse 24... 
26, 24, The Son of Man goeth as is written of him, but woe, I love that, woe unto that man by whom Jesus of, I'm, I'm sorry, by whom the Son of Man is betrayed, if it had been good for that man, if he had not been born. Could you imagine the Lord saying that? You should have never been born, buddy. <laughs> no, thank you. Then, Jesus, then Judas, which betrayed him, answered and said, what? Master. Master, is it I? And what does the Lord say? Yes. By the way, you'll notice verse 22. The end there they say, Lord, is it I? Judas says, Master. If you drop down to verse 49, 26, 49. And forwith, forthwith he, and that's Judas, came to Jesus and said, Hail, Master, and kissed him. Judas Iscariot could never bring himself to call the Lord, Lord. John 13 over there, he says, you call me master and Lord, and you say, well, for so I am. The only one of them who kept calling him master, everybody else called him Lord, is going to end up being the one who, kill, who betrays him. And uh, he could never do that. So in the chapter here, and in chapter 13, there are, I'm sorry, John 13, in the section here, there are seven different times where Jesus tries to win Judas from, his, from doing his dastardly deed. And Judas goes on in spite of all those attempts. And he went on his way, and he does his stuff. And that's why he says to him, Thus thou hast said... And off they go. They betrayed him. So as we continue down, time's up for sure now. It's been an hour. As they were eating, Jesus took bread and blessed it. And then you get the what is always called the institution of the Lord's Supper and so forth. And you get your wranglings about that. But here they, here they are, that picture. The Lord says, look, guys, two days I'm going to go die. I need you to remember. You remember back in Bethany when we were there and, this, and she did this to me? You guys remember that? And they're like, yeah. One, there's going to be now a memorial for her forever. By the way, that memorial sits on the everlasting pages of the Word of God. That's where it sits. Never to be erased, never to be changed. It's right there. It's fascinating, you know. And he says, and by the way, that's how we're going to know who. You saw that event, that warm, touching event. You guys didn't quite understand. Guess what? It revealed Judas Iscariot. It revealed the next piece of the puzzle that I'm now putting together and framing for you. And what you're seeing here is the issue of them living a godly and faithful life as the Savior. And then at the very end to be betrayed by a trusted friend and confident. By the way, Judas Iscariot was the treasurer of the group. That's why he had such a big fit about the 300 pence thing. They allowed Judas to, to count the money. That's a trusted 
area. That's a, they, they trusted him enough to keep, for him to keep the, the money, the funds for the group. He was someone that they had confidence in. And then he goes and betrays. And honestly, I think in, that's, uh, the Lord had great heartache in that. And uh, that heartache there, um, we would never fully understand it. I know what it is to be betrayed, but man, for the Lord to be betrayed, here he is. And uh, so we'll go up into the upper room next time and pick up in verse 26. See, I told you we'd get to 26. I didn't think we were because I was going a little slower there at the beginning. But uh, we'll, we'll look at that and where he then gives them the supper. <laughs> I read a guy one time, it was called the Lord's Snack. <laughs> I'm like, yeah, it is a snack, I guess. It's not, it's not a supper as far as the meal goes. They've already eaten. And then he does this at the end. So we'll talk about that and move on next time, okay? All right, Heavenly Father, we thank you for the evening, Lord. We thank you for your word. We thank you for the event now that you're going to do, which is Calvary, and the fact that you did go and you did die. You were buried and yet you rose again the third day for, for the sins of the world, including us today. And we'll give you the honor and the glory and the thanks for that. In your name we pray. Amen. <laughs>